Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician, and I'm really honored and really excited to be here today with Dr. Kalina Chartran-Sethi. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. Dr. Sethi completed her undergraduate degree at New York University and Medical School at the University of Massachusetts in 2008. She then completed her residency in general pediatrics at New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell and her fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics at Cohen Children's Medical Center, Northwell Health. She worked at Flushing Hospital Medical Center evaluating children with a variety of developmental conditions for several years. In 2021, she opened a private practice. She specializes in diagnosis and management of developmental and behavioral problems. She is passionate about helping families of children with developmental and behavioral difficulties understand their child's diagnosis, comprehend how this diagnosis was made, and learn ways how to manage the condition in all aspects of the child's life. She is certified by the American Board of Pediatrics and General Pediatrics and Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. So this is a topic I'm also passionate about. (laughs) So I'm really excited to do this with you. (laughs) I'm glad. Thank you. So we're going to start with just put in perspective, how common are these developmental and behavioral problems? Developmental and behavioral problems are very, very common. Um, About 17% of children actually in this country have a developmental and behavioral diagnosis. Um, That ranges from developmental delays in infancy, autism, ADHD, learning disabilities. Um, You know, the newest statistics on autism is one in 44 children. four times more common in boys than in girls. So it's a big issue that we see in general pediatrics as well as in my subspecialty. That is really high. That's over 2% of the population. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's only getting more common as the years go on. So I'm going to start with that question. Why? (laughs) Before we go on further, because everybody's (laughs) going to say, what's going on? There's this rise in autism and there's still such a fear, you know, of what could be triggering it. Mm -hmm. That is the million dollar question. Um, We honestly don't have a great answer for that right now. Their thought is that it's some interplay between genetic predisposition and environmental causes. You know, we have a lot of um, the food that we eat is different now, and there's a lot of environmental toxins that people are exposed to. And um, so that's the thought. We do have, um, as we get better understanding and better tests for genetic diagnoses, we are able to explain some um, based on genetics, but it's certainly the minority. The majority of autism cases are unexplained. Right. But you did mention, and I think it's important to say that the diagnostic um, classification has changed, A. And again, I've done a talk on this with um, Dr. Devorah Siegel on autism, and we talked about Mm -hmm. the classification change, and it was relevant to my own daughter who didn't get diagnosed until she was 11, and yet she was in early intervention before she was a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get a little bit to that later, but I do want to point out that it's not simply a matter of them considering it a spectrum, a wide spectrum, um, and understanding that it's also that there are services that are available specifically. 
kids. Yes, yes. So we tend to be quite liberal with diagnosing autism. Um, if a child has symptoms and that are described um, in the DSM and we can make that case for a diagnosis of autism, then we generally will make the diagnosis even if kids are a little bit borderline because they get such specific um, and necessary services. And we know that the services improve their functioning. Right. And we're talking specifically about applied behavioral analysis. I don't know if you want to um, explain what that is. And I, I sure. will say, I will say before you get into that, that I did also an interview with a pediatric genetic specialist. And we were talking um, for a while about genetics and autism. They're finding more and more and more genetic links to autism. Um, and she had said, I wish, I wish that ABA, the applied behavioral analysis would be available to any child who needs it and not just based on diagnosis. So the rate of, you know, children getting diagnosed as intellectually disabled, used to be called mentally retarded, is dropping as autism is rising, purely because this treatment is available to children with an autism diagnosis, but not those with an intellectual disability. Exactly. And many kids with intellectual disabilities also have symptoms of autism. And mm. so ten there's a big overlap between those two diagnoses. And so we tend to give the autism diagnosis as uh, primary because that gives access to ABA therapy. Right, which is what? Which is applied behavior analysis. So it's a specific uh, type of therapy that is, um, a lot of the research is in kids with autism, but it's been shown to help with children with a variety of de developmental issues. And it's really based on, um, on positive feedback and observing a child's behavior, observing what interventions are going to increase the likelihood of a child having a behavior that you want, for example, eye contact. Um, so you give a child rewards based on the, um, based on them doing this behavior. And then that hopefully increases the frequency of the behavior. And another one of the hallmarks of ABA therapy is the data collection. So they're really taking um, note every time is and is the therapy that I'm doing increasing the behavior that I want? Is it decreasing the behavior that I want? And how can I change so that I'm really increasing those behaviors that I'm trying to get out of the child? Right. And it's also breaking down the behavior to manageable parts and reinforcing it. So I would think that even a child with who's not on the autism spectrum has cognitive disabilities would, would benefit from it. So why is it being limited to kids with an autism diagnosis? Uh, I think it's about money. It's mm. expensive. Um, and so generally in New York State, kids with an autism diagnosis can get 20 hours of ABA per week through early intervention. Now that changes when the child turns three and the services shift to being going through the school system versus through early intervention. Um, but with this large burden of kids with uh, autism, just finding enough therapists and funding that therapy just for the kids with an autism diagnosis is challenging. Um, and so it would work for a broader, um, broader group of children, mm -hmm. but it's difficult to a have enough trained therapists to be doing the therapy mm -hmm. and overseeing it and be paying for it. Okay. We'll keep that in mind when we get back to autism, but I want to start with the youngest ages and have you tell us, what do you do as a developmental pediatrician and how do you help the kids of the different ages with different issues? Mm -hmm. so we'll start with yes. the little babies. I'll let you start there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the youngest kids that we see um, infants generally are identified because they were born premature. Um, 
or they have a genetic condition, a congenital anomaly. So we know from birth that they're at risk. Um, those kids are generally plugged into early intervention through the NICU or through the hospital where they were born um, and start getting services in the home through early intervention pretty early on. Um, the young kids tend to start just with physical therapy because most of the early development is gross motor. And then as we are expecting more fine motor tasks, generally around six months, the occupational therapy will start. And then as the language development, we, that, you know, starts to kick in and we expect kids to be developing more language and the speech therapy um, will start usually between 12 and 18 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find that for me, the developmental concerns really um, start most commonly at the mm, toddler 18 to two-year-old mm-hmm. age. So let's move on to that because basically the first thing I see is they're not talking on schedule. Exactly. So language delays are one of the most common reasons that I would see a child. And I will say I mostly see kids that are two and over just because the younger ones are plugged into early intervention um, from the hospital. And so there's not really a need for me. Um, So definitely speech language delays between 18 months and two um, are one of the most common things that I see. And my job is really to figure out, is this a straightforward language, you know, expressive language delay? Mm -hmm. Is this a child that understands everything that's being told to them and said to them, but they're not talking? Um, Is this a child who has a more significant language delay that they have a receptive or an understanding delay as well? Um, Or is this a child who has other things? Do they have cognitive delays? Are they having behavior issues um, that, that the parents are having difficulty managing? Are there concerns for autism, like decreased eye contact, repetitive behaviors, um, things like that? So that is, you know, really where I come in at that age um, to try and figure out if the speech delay is just a speech delay or if it's something more. Right. And by the way, since COVID, I don't know if you're hearing about this, There, I'm seeing so many more of these preschoolers and toddlers with speech delays. Yes. Um, I think that's multifactorial. Mm-hmm. These kids are, they're not getting the social interactions that they mm-hmm. used to get. So they're home uh, for, you know, a lot of kids are home for a significant period of time and just with their parents or maybe a sibling. Um, when they are out, they're not seeing people's faces. And a lot of language development comes from looking at people's mouths moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you take a child who's in daycare full time with a, with a um, caretaker whose face is covered, it's difficult for them to get that level of input, um, watching people's mouths move, imitating people's mouths moving and facial expressions, seeing the position of the lips and the tongue. Um, so that has had a big impact on children. Right. right. And I wonder also if, if parents are just stressed and not talking as much. Yes. Kids. <laughs> Definitely. And one hypothesis, actually. Yes. I I, kids who were home with their parents. It's not that they're in a school and everybody's wearing a mask. You know, I know the masks mm-hmm. are being blamed and we're not going to talk about masks, pro-mask, anti-school children, you know. <laughs> no, that wasn't my that. intention. I, it's just, yeah. you know, it, it is one of the effects. Right, right. Um, I'm saying, I don't totally, know that, that is the biggest, that is the biggest piece. My suspicion is that there's a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you're yeah. asking parents now, they're having to be full-time parents, plus they're having to work full-time right. from home. Um or they're not able to work from home and, and they're stressed out about, you know, what possible exposures they're having in the workplace or they've lost their job and they're stressed because right. they're worried about all of that um, socioeconomic uncertainty. Uh, 
Right. So I want to talk about what you mentioned briefly as the expressive language delay, because I would say that's the most common thing I see. And I have parents who are really on the ball. They really want to get their child's speech, you know, up to par. Um, And a common thing that happens is they'll come in and they'll be worried with, say, a 15 month old or an 18 month old who's otherwise completely normal, understands everything and doesn't have the vocabulary they think the child should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of that is managing parent expectations. So, fifteen-month-old, if they have one or two words, that's great. Eighteen-month-old, um, ideally, they would have about ten words. That's the average. So, the fiftieth percentile average child will have ten words. But if, still, if a child has one or two words at eighteen months, mama, dada, maybe one other word, um, that's actually completely appropriate for an eighteen-month-old. Right. And what I find is that because the criteria for getting early intervention services is you have to have a 25% delay in two or more areas of 33% in one, that if you have a child whose only delay is speech and they're 18 months old, they've got to be at a 12 month age level or lower, which means basically no words. Mm -hmm. So until they're 21 months, it's very hard to qualify and usually two. And then what happens is they go there and they're turned, they're turned away because they're ineligible. They don't meet criteria. And then they're told you can't come back for X period of time. And because they're inundated because of the pandemic and the rise in cases, I'm having kids, families being told things that aren't even true. Like you only get a certain amount of shots at this, which is not true. People who are listening to this, that is not true, (laughs) but you can't keep going. And the point is to try to hit the sweet spot. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that's why I say it's important to manage parents' expectation mm-hmm. about development because it, development is a spectrum. Right. Um, there is There are kids who are above average, there are kids who are below average, but still normal. Um, and so especially if it's a straightforward speech, th- speech delay and I'm not concerned about anything else, I tend to hold off on referring to early intervention right. at 18 months. I wait until, like you said, 21 months or generally I wait until two um, just because they're not going to, they're generally not going to qualify at 18 months. And then you're sort of in this gray area, the parents are worried. And, um, so I agree. I find it's better to hold off, um, if it's a straightforward speech and language. Delay. Right. The only thing I do, because it's something that, um, doesn't hurt and can help is get a hearing eval. Yes. Just get that yes. out of the way. Parents will say, but my child was tested at birth and I think they hear fine. They could have fluid in their ear. It could be holding them back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that. I've seen kids who have a speech delay and we do the hearing test and they have fluid, they get tubes placed. And then three, four months later, their language has really progressed and they're, you know, all those concerns are gone. Right. But this would be for a child, like I said, who has a very specific expressive delay. They just don't have a lot of words, but they are developmentally on target everywhere else. What would Mm -hmm. be a child that you would want evaluated earlier with speech delay? Let's make a different scenario. Mm -hmm. So I pay a lot of attention to the social development with speech delay. Um, So I want to look at the child's eye contact, at their gestures, at how they're playing. Um, Are they showing, are they bring, when they see something new, are they bringing that toy to their parents? Are they showing it to them? Are they giving their parents toys? Um, Are they pointing? Are they clapping? Um, those are a lot of the social, a lot of the social milestones um, that if a child is not doing, then that raises red flags for autism. And I would want to get them evaluated sooner rather than later. Right. Because again, getting that diagnosis of autism as soon as possible 
is really important. And I guess we can get into that in a little bit. Um, I'm also thinking about other causes of speech delay besides expressive and besides autism. What are some red flags that they shouldn't be waiting until two? Um, so I look at the receptive, at the mm-hmm. receptive language too. Um, so a child with an expressive only delay is, which is the speaking part, um, when you tell, ask them to do something, give that to me, go get your shoes, go get the ball, they're going to do that. They're going to understand um, what you're saying. They're going to be able to follow some commands. Um, and if they're really not, if that understanding piece isn't there, um, they're, they're not able to follow, you know, a one-step command at, by 18 months, two-step command by two, um, then that makes me concerned that the receptive piece is not, um, it's delayed as well. And I would want to get them evaluated earlier. Right. I also do it if they have other delays, because again, it goes back to the mathematical formula of 25%, two or more, <laughs> you know, if they've got some fine motor, or gross motor, you know, and mm-hmm. if they have multiple areas also, there may be something more going on. So yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. And, and the other thing I would want to point out is, um, regression. Yes. So a developmental regression at any time. So this is truly losing a skill that, um, that you used to have, that a child used to have. Um, that's a red flag for, for autism. It's also a red flag for, um, some seizure disorders. So that's a child you would want, I would want refer to a neurologist, um, to get an EEG to rule out any seizures. Um, and you know, to get a full evaluation from early intervention as soon as I see any regression. Right. That's really, really important. Okay. So we've talked about the little kids in terms of speech. Um, I would say the next age, actually, I don't want to go there yet. I want to stick with, with autism and go into that in a little more depth. Um, mm-hmm. I think that one thing that I, I find is difficult is parents do not necessarily, are not necessarily comfortable with a diagnosis. Um, you can get, you don't necessarily get labeled through early intervention. They're not there actually to make a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, although that nowadays they often will have a psychologist who will do ADOS testing, which is the, and if you want to go into that, the testing for autism that then enables them to give the ABA therapy under the autism umbrella. Yes. So early intervention in my experience is actually even though that's not their goal, they are pretty good about doing um, a psychological evaluation, doing specific testing for autism and making a diagnosis because they do provide ABA therapy through early intervention. Um, it is relevant. I have seen kids, however, who they're, who fell through the cracks that they didn't, you know, right. get that additional evaluation through early intervention. And so didn't get that diagnosis and did not get that therapy. Right. Uh, Right. I find that, you know, there are kids who are just so obvious. Mm-hmm. They're not there to be diagnosticians. So think about it as a bonus. Yes. <laughs> <Not to> think <laughs> about it as something that you can, you know, as a parent can advocate for. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you can also go to a developmental pediatrician yes. and get a diagnosis or their general pediatrician. And although um, it, it can be hard for a general pediatrician to, to make a diagnosis on a young child. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I have the benefit of time. Mm -hmm. I spend one to one and a half or sometimes more um, and have multiple, you know, one to one and a half hour appointments as part of my evaluation. 
And as a general pediatrician, you don't have the time and bandwidth to do that because you have such volume that you are expected and have to see. Um, so there are some kids who are very obvious that a general pediatrician can certainly make the diagnosis. But because of that time crunch, you don't have the time to sit down with the parents and have a one hour discussion and answer all of their questions and, um, you know, have that really in-depth conversation mm -hmm. that a diagnosis like autism deserves. And so that's the luxury that I have being a subspecialist um, that I book our two, you know, because I'm in private practice, I actually book two hour appointments. So I know I never have to shuttle anyone out of my office. But in my previous, um, in my fellowship and in my previous job, our appointments were an hour long. So we really do have the that luxury of time. Right. And that's different from a neurologist as well. I mean, neurologists are, yes. are often more accessible and they're super useful for, for example, ruling out seizures. Mm -hmm. But if they also have a short appointment and they don't do specific testing, then they're just making it the same way a pediatrician can, which is not yes. necessarily a bad thing. I would never let perfect be the enemy of the, as good as you're going to get. But can you explain what an ADOS test is? Because I alluded to it. I yes. said you can sometimes get it through early intervention. It depends on the agency. It depends on your state. depends on so many things. Yes. The ADOS, it, it stands for Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And this is considered the gold standard test for diagnosing autism. It's a series of structured play-based activities that is done with the examiner and the child. And depending on the child's um, language level, the parent may or may not be in the room as well. And what's nice about this test is that the set of activities is chosen based on a child's expressive language level. So it takes the language delay piece out of it. So a lot of kids with language, the combination of language delays and some inattention or executive functioning deficits look like they have autism. But actually, when you take the language away, their social skills are intact. Their gestures are intact. Um, the way that they the way that they integrate their eye contact, what vocalizations they make and um, their gestures in order to initiate and continue a social interaction, that piece is normal. That piece is typical. Um, and that's what the ADOS is really good at determining um, in order to make that diagnosis of autism. Right. Is anybody still using the CARS? Yes, they use. So I, where I did my fellowship, they use the CARS. Um, this is at Cohen's because... It's a, it's a shorter test. It's not as, um, it's not as time intensive on the, on the, um, on the doctor. So they do use it. It's not an ideal test. I, in my practice, I don't use it because I think that it has a lot of, um, subjectivity. There's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of subjectivity. Yeah. It's a lot lacking. It's basically you rate a child on 15 different, um, behaviors and it's based on the interview with the parent. So I don't find that the CARS gives me anything extra than what I've already gotten from taking my history. Right, right. And again, I find that some parents are really ready to accept that their child, you know, maybe on the autism spectrum and others are not. And if you're dependent on the parent to answer the questions and they don't see it. And this, by the way, is the same problem with the MCHAT, which is a, an mm -hmm. autism screen that pediatricians should be doing. Yes. And it's not hard because the parent fills it out. And it's supposed to be done at 18 months and 24 months. And I find it's really hit or miss. It is. And with the MCHAT, it's very obvious what the, quote, right answer is. Right. Correct. Um, so if you, as a parent, you want to think the best of your child and you want to present the best um, version of your child. And so I think some people overestimate their, ch their child's abilities. 
Right, which is sad because if you go back to the whole point of picking these up and the whole point of getting early intervention is to help the child improve and reach their potential. And mm-hmm. so it's better to think of your child on their worst day, in their in the worst light, which is so counterintuitive to what a parent normally does. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what I counsel parents to do when they're filling out um like an adaptive behavior assessment, which is a description of a child's functioning in their everyday life. Um, and sometimes parents will overestimate or give their child on the best day, and then the child will look like they're functioning much higher than they are, and then that child isn't eligible for services that they really need and should be getting and um, and would benefit from. Right, and I wanted to talk a little bit also about a controversy of ABA because this has actually come up in my practice um, that there are some parents that don't want the ABA. I don't know if you've heard this. Yes, I've had a I've had a couple. Um, I think there is a thought. Um, I want to make sure I phrase, I say this properly. So, very strict classical ABA is very rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people think that it's sort of instead of teaching children to have naturalistic social responses, it teaches them to be a little bit more robotic and um, it's sort of classical conditioning stimulus response. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents shy away from that. But that's modern day ABA that is done now in the home is much more naturalistic and it uses that positive feedback and reward system and data gathering of classical ABA, but it's not at, it's not as rigid and it's not as, um, uh, what's blanking on the right word, but you know, you look at videos of classical ABA and the, the therapist will say, look at me. And then every time the kid looks at them, they right. put an M&M in the kid's mouth. Right. And, then, <laughs> and also I think one of the objections is it's trying to make them look normal. So there's a whole neurodivergent movement that mm-hmm. says, Hey, autism isn't necessarily a, a disease or a disorder. It's a different way of thinking. And we want them to um, be able to be happy with who they are. Mm-hmm. I still say they've got to function, you know? So exactly. I think that that's where the, it becomes an ideology to be anti ABA Mm-hmm. You know, it means letting my child be themselves, except that if they can't function, that's a problem. Exactly. And that's why it's important for the parents to work with the ABA therapist to target specific behaviors or less lack of behaviors that are um, preventing a child from functioning, that are causing distress for the child. Um, I always have conversations with parents about, you know, the sort of self-stimulatory behaviors that a lot of kids with ABA with, sorry, a lot of kids with autism have. Um, so they say, oh, he, you know, he goes in the corner and he spins around. Okay. He's getting something from that behavior, whether it's calming him down or it's giving him some sensory input. So is that really, is that a problem that he does that? Is it interfering with him, you know, doing other things that he needs to do? Or is it something that he can do and that's actually helping him to function. Um, so it's important to differentiate between um, behaviors that really need to be targeted because they're interfering with the child's ability to function and behaviors that may be a, um, 
you know, someone who doesn't have knowledge of these, of um, neurodiversity would label an atypical or a strange or odd behavior, but really is serving a purpose for the child. And so we should allow them to do that. Right. And I think the parent is the child's best advocate and they can say, I don't want the goal to be to make eye contact. My child is aversive. It's aversive to them. It hurts them Mm -hmm. to make eye contact. My child needs to spin. They need that input, but they need to learn how to be more social or they need to learn how to focus on something for more than a few seconds. Exactly. And I think that's where the parent comes in. And by the way, anytime you have any therapist, if you don't like the therapist, you can let them go. Mm-hmm. You don't have to stick there. That's not, they're not all exactly the same. They're not all made equal. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I, I personally don't like to get ideologically rigid, you know, for a specific method or, you know, or against it. Mm-hmm. So I want yeah, to, and I would on. say, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, say it. Oh, I just wanted to say one of the most important things that, um, children with autism need to learn is joint attention. And that's mm-hmm. the ability to focus on what someone else wants you to focus on. And if that, that piece needs to be there in order to learn. So to learn, you need to be able to attend to what someone else wants you to, um, to attend to so that they can teach you. And that's, to me, that's the building block. And that's the piece that um, ABA really should focus on. Right, right, right. And again, I mean, it can be worked with other things. It doesn't have to be used in a robotic way. And I think mm-hmm. we've come a long way with ABA. Um, I want to go back to something you said about the children that look like they're autistic, but they're not because they're hyper and they're, they don't have good language. So tell me more about those kids, please. I yes. see them too. <laughs> so this is one of the most common diagnostic dilemmas that I have is generally it's a preschool age child. So these kids tend to be, um, you know, higher functioning and with, with autism, we see the kids diagnosed very early tend to be lower functioning and have lower cognitive skills, more delays. And the more skills a child has, the later the diagnosis is. So these kids I tend to see at three, four, five, when they're starting to be in a school setting and they have difficulty with attention, they're not sitting still, um, and they have some language delays, but they tend to have some language. So they're not completely nonverbal. Um, but they do have some language delays. And when you see that combination of language delay and with language delay comes delays in the play skills, those two things tend to develop um, in parallel. And then with the delays in the language and the play skills, you see that their interactions with peers are impacted. Um, and so you see differences in the way that they're socializing. And you see with attention issues, you see that joint attention piece that I was just talking to mm-hmm. um, is they have difficulty with, with, with attention issues. So I very commonly see, um, you know, see a child that I say, is this a kid with language delay autism or is this a kid with language delay and, you know, early presentation of ADHD, ADHD. symptoms, executive functioning deficits. Uh-huh. And that's where I find that ADOS is really good at mm-hmm. parsing out which kid is which, um, because it looks at the social skills, but takes the language piece out of it. Right. And I think that's where you have to really be careful to get a good diagnosis. Yes. Because if you go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician says, sure, they're on the spectrum or sure they have ADHD, Mm -hmm. right. And they may put a label on them and that label may be wrong. Yes. And I'm very, I very rarely label a child as having ADHD before six, um, because a lot of kids with, quote, early ADHD symptoms at three, four, five, it's because we're putting them in 
environments that are not developmentally appropriate mm, for them. So true. Um, we're putting them in a in a preschool or in a kindergarten and they're expected to sit at a desk and learn how to read. And really kids at that age need to be playing. Um, they need more free play than anything else. So when we put them in a situation where they have to sit at the desk and listen to the teacher, they're going to be inattentive. They're going to be getting out of their seat. Um, and it doesn't mean that they have ADHD. It means that they're just typically developing kid in an inappropriate environment. And how can you tell the difference between a very active child at that age and a child with ADHD? <laughs> um, it is challenging. And this is why even the kids that I think are probably going to have ADHD, I, you know, a lot of times I'm wrong. And so I, tr I really try to not give that label too young. Um, the kids that I do tend to give that label to at a younger age are kids who are engaging in dangerous behaviors. Mm. Um, so they're not just the kid getting out of the seat, but they're, you know, running away from the classroom. They're opening the doors at home, running away from mom into the street, climbing to, you know, high heights on furniture, not understanding, you know, not understanding dangers that kids at that age really should understand. That's, that's really important. Um, I'm still thinking about how parents often will say, um, my child's hyper, my child's hyper. And I have to explain that there's a wide range, just as there's a wide range of mm -hmm. speech development, there's also a wide range of ability to, you know, have good executive function. Yes. Um, and so it's hard to tell. And I think that one of the reasons parents don't want that ADHD diagnosis, possibly at any age, but certainly early on, is they're thinking, if I get the ADHD diagnosis, that means my child needs to be on medication. Yes. Um, and medication for me is really the last um, recommendation that I make. It's when we, we've, you know, changed the environment as much as we can in school. We've done, you know, behavior therapy, trying to teach the child um, the executive functioning, the self-regulation skills. Um, and if we're still seeing, you know, attention problems and, um, hyperactivity that are interfering with functioning. That's really the key to this too, right. is that it's, we're seeing that the child's having, you know, academic difficulty because they can't pay attention or they're socially ostracized. They're not able to, you know, play a sport because they can't attend to this practice and they can't pay attention to the rules. Um, you know, and after we've sort of done all of the other things that we can do, then we talk about medication, but that's a decision that is, you know, something I make with the parents. It's not something I dictate from on high because I've made that diagnosis. It's really, um, if that's something that the parents are interested in and they feel like it would help their child, that's something that we, you know, that I discuss and I'm willing to try and prescribe. Um, and just because you try medication doesn't mean that you, your child has to take medication forever. It's an ongoing, you know, it's an ongoing conversation and ongoing decision-making. Right. And there's other things that could mimic inattention also, like sleep apnea, um, you know, other things, poor, poor diet. And and again, mm -hmm. I like how you pointed out that a lot of times you just have inappropriate expectations of children developmentally. Again, there's also a spectrum of what kids, you know, can do academically at a specific mm -hmm. age or how long, you know. So all of these things are so variable. And I, th I think the recommendation is for under- is it under six or under five not to use medication as a first line? And that's the recommendation. Yes, under six. So five and under, um, the recommendation is behavior therapy as first line. Um, six and over, the recommendation, you know, is medication for first line. That's 
not generally how I practice. And I find that parents are, don't want to use medication as first line. Um, and so I try, I work with the other things and I think the other things are actually just as if not more important than medication. And what you had said before, I don't think can be glossed over is that if just like you or I, if we don't feel good, if we haven't slept well and we didn't eat well and, and we physically don't feel well, we're not going to be able to pay attention to our work. And the same is true for children. So I always talk about sleep, um, not only sleep apnea, but sleep hygiene. Um, I always talk about physical activity. Is the kid getting enough movement during the day? Nutrition. Um, are they eating, you know, only carbs and processed food? Right, or are they getting right, a right. good balanced diet? And then the fourth piece that I always talk about is screen time. Um, we know that overuse of screens impacts kids' sleep. It interferes with their um, physical activity. It interferes with their brain chemistry. And so if kids are on the screen on screens all day, you know, that's definitely going to impact their attention as well. Which the pandemic has not helped. Yes, <laughs> especially now that they're on the screen while they're in school. Um, right. Or having school on the computer. Right. So that's been de- really challenging for everyone. It's refreshing to hear because I feel like as physicians, we're often pressured to say ADHD equals medication because we have short visits, which is, again, the advantage. I'm not intentionally advertising you, but, <laughs> but I'm doing it because I think it's so important to have time. And pediatricians mm-hmm. don't have a lot of time. Neurologists often don't have a lot of time. I mean, some do. And some do an amazing job of this because time is the most valuable asset for this, Mm -hmm. right? To talk to parents, to look at the situation, to try to figure out what's going on, as opposed to it's like strep, you get amoxyl, ADHD, you get, you know, Ritalin. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. and it really isn't. So it's refreshing to hear you say that it's not first line for you. And by the way, I did podcasts on this. I did one on ADHD with a neurologist and I did another one on ADHD with um, someone who has six children with ADHD who she does not medicate. Wow. So she wrote a book called Hyper Healing, and that's a separate podcast. You can listen to it too. <laughs> yes, I will do that. <laughs> um, so, but I, the reality though, I, I think for a lot of families is that they may try this. They may try all these things and try the best. And, and we, I forgot to say also about a 504 plan that yes. even if your child doesn't have, um, deficits in their, um, Academics, they can still, um, if they have a diagnosis of ADHD, get a 504 plan for accommodations, modifications, um, you know, smaller, um, sit in front of the class, directions read and explained, whatever. All of these things can help um, even a child who is not taking medication. But then you get to the point where you're out of options. Yes. Yep. And then, you know, that's when we have the discussion. I have the discussion about medication with parents. And if it's something they're interested in pursuing, then I, you know, we talk about it and we go there and there's a lot of parents who, you know, still at the end, they're not interested and that's okay. Right. Again, like I said, this is really the parent's decision. It's not, it's not a broken arm. It's not strep throat. Right. Um, it's, not it's, it's treating us, it's treating a symptom. It's not curing the disorder. Um, so the parents, and there are side effects to the ADHD medication. Right. And so for some kids, the benefit that they get from the medication outweighs the side effects that they have. And some kids are more sensitive and the side effects outweigh the benefit. Um, the only way to know where your child is going to lie on that spectrum is to, is to try. Um, and it is trial and error. And it's important 
to explain that to parents before starting medication is we, when you're picking medication, there's a little bit of science to it. You know, there's different ones that last longer periods of time. There's different classes of medication. There's liquids, there's chews, there's pills that you swallow. Um, But there's also a little bit of art and trial and error in the first medication may not work or it may give your child side effects and we have may have to go through two, three, four before we find the right one or we may not find the right one and you might want to stop. Um, and so it's a it's a process of medication. Right. And it's good to know that a lot, pretty much all of them have a short acting. So you could do a short acting so it's out of your child's system faster. You could do a lower dose and go slower. Yes, exactly. A really good, you know, clinician to do this with. Again, yeah. <laughs> really important. Yeah. Yeah. So there's medications, you know, the shortest acting lasts about three hours and we have ones that last all the way up to 12 hours. So there's, there's a medication, you know, hopefully that will fit the, um, the symptom treatment that parents need. But again, some kids just have side effects and it doesn't work for them. Right. Right. No, that's, that's really refreshing to hear. I mean, I know a lot of pediatricians do do ADHD medication and some are very, very good at it, but I also find that, there's the kids who are pretty straightforward, and then there are those who are more complex. I don't know if you want to go into the more complex yes. ADHD <laughs> oppositional defiant type child, for example. Yes, <laughs> yes. So the more complex ones are the ones that tend to end up in my office. Um, the kids who are pretty straightforward ADHD, they don't have any learning issues, they don't have any language issues, they don't have behavior issues. The general pediatricians generally, you know, because it's not as complex, it doesn't take as much time, you know, are more comfortable and have the time to treat those kids. Um, so the kids with, for example, oppositional defiant disorder um, or oppositional symptoms on top of the attention problems, um, these are the kids who are, you know, difficult temperaments. They're having tantrums. They're telling you no all the time. They don't listen. Um, you know, those difficult to parent kids. Um, and those symptoms are not treated by the medication. Um, for those kids, the discussion that I generally have with the parents is that these behaviors are coming from a skill that the child lacks. And so you have to figure out what that skill that they're lacking is and then work with the child to, um, come up with a plan to, you know, manage those situations where they're oppositional differently to teach them that skill, um, timeouts, punishments, they tend not to work for those kids because it's not that the kids are being bad because they don't are quote being bad. It's not that they don't know what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to act. It's that they don't have the skill um, to act in the way that we want them to act. They don't have the emotional regulation skill. They don't have the vocabulary to express, you know, that complex vocabulary to express how they're feeling. Um, there's a great book that talks about this. It's called The Explosive Child. Child by Ross Green. Yes. yes. It's really fantastic. <laughs> it is amazing. Um, and really helps you. It helped me when I read it. Um, and I think the parents that have gone through the process and read it helps them reframe their thinking about the child's behavior, understand where the child is coming from, and um, helps heal that relationship between the parent and the child. You know, there's another nice book, um, Jed Baker, who has written a lot for um, kids on the spectrum has a book for more neurotypical kids, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is good for this group also called no more meltdowns. Okay. That one I haven't read, but I'm going to add it to my list. Yeah. That's also a good one. 
speaking from experience here. Okay. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you the other one I really like for little kids is how to talk. So little kids will listen, um, by Joanna Faber, the Faber, so the yeah. daughter of Adele Faber. Yeah. Yes. Right. She yeah. wrote how to talk. So your kids. Yeah. Will she wrote how to talk, how to talk. So kids will listen and listen. So kids will talk. And then her daughter wrote one for younger kids, age two to seven, um, which is a really nice. I haven't nice, read it, but that's really cute that the daughter yeah. <laughs> taking over that. But I think that the point that you're making is really, really important that so much of this is how you parent. And I think that unless you teach the parents that there's a different way to parent these kids, right? The definition yes. of insanity, right, is doing what doesn't work over and over and over again. And and by the way, it's also a problem, not a problem, but it's also a job of the parents often to advocate for their kids when the school or their teacher is acting like waving a red flag to a bull for these kids. Yes. Yes. And again, the schools, and I feel for the teachers, right? If you are dealing with 30 kids in your class and half of them probably need IEPs, um, you know, it's really challenging. But some of the ways that they manage behaviors in school are not effective and are really maladaptive. So one of the common things that I see is they have this sort of whole class behavior chart where everyone is on a color and depending on what color you are, the behavior is better or worse. And the whole class knows when, when one child's getting in trouble. So it's very shame based. Um, and I, the oppositional kids do not respond well to that. Um, and so that really, you know, they really need to be managed in a different way. And then the other thing that they do in school sometimes is take away recess from the kids, which just mm. it compounds the issue times a million because these kids really need that physical activity and they need that free play time. Right. And I think that children in school are entitled to a behavioral analysis, a functional behavior analysis. And that's something parents can yes. ask for if it hasn't been done. And then a behavior yes. intervention plan that will work for them, not just for the rest of the class. Exactly. And that's really important is, you know, we have in this country a right to a free, appropriate public education. Um, and so what works for the rest of the class, if that doesn't work for your child, that means that's not an appropriate education for them. And the school needs to, the, t- the teacher needs to intervene and, um, you know, give your child the education and the behavior plan that's appropriate and effective for them. Right. And they're entitled to a free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. And I think that's a really important concept too, because not every child belongs in their local public school, and it may not be simply a matter of picking the right medication to help them fit in. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, a lot of behavior issues that we see in school is because the child the child has an underlying learning disability, and if they cannot learn in the way that they're being taught, then a lot of kids have acting out behaviors because they get frustrated. And teaching kids with learning disabilities need to be taught in a very specific way. And the public schools a lot of times are not equipped to, to teach those kids. They just can't, they have, you know, they're equipped to teach the masses, um, not necessarily the outliers. So I I think, you know, if a parent does have a child with a learning disability, then they have a choice. They can either do private tutoring Right. Which means the child's mm-hmm. sitting there all day, not being taught the properly and then has to go home and right. learn. I think that they could fight theoretically for an appropriate 
program for their child. I'm not even sure how that works. Or they can pull them out and put them in another school, Mm -hmm. which may or may not be one of the approved schools on the public school. Right. So depending on the severity of the learning disability, there are kids who um, can be put in a, you know, an integrated class with a special education teacher and a general education teacher for kids with more mild disabilities, for kids with more significant disabilities that really can't be taught in the public school. The onus, unfortunately, is on the parents um, to get them in an alternate setting. Now, that can look like the parents paying for a private school or um, suing the public school system to try and get the public school system to pay for um, to pay for the private school in a, you know, in an approved non-public school setting. It is a, it is a process. Um, and it takes a year, if not more often to get these, um, to get these done and working with a lawyer. Um, but thankfully there are educational lawyers who, um, who take these cases pro bono. So it does, if they think you have a good case, so it's not necessarily a huge financial commitment. But it is a big time commitment. That is, that is really hard to find, um, to be honest. Um, it's hard. And it's even hard mm-hmm. getting the diagnosis of learning disabilities. I think it's important to point out that the testing that the schools do is not really diagnostic testing. Similar to early intervention, not really being there to diagnose your child. Right. The testing for the higher level services, right? Because first you have early intervention, then you have committee for preschool special ed, and then you have from five and up committee for special ed, which is where, right, you would pick up the learning disabilities because you wouldn't see that. Mm-hmm. You would see that only in school age. Right. And you can, so you can see um, early on, even, you know, preschool, kindergarten kids who are at risk for developing dyslexia because you see that they are having difficulty with their phonetics. So they have trouble rhyming. They have trouble playing word games. They have trouble recognizing letters. They have trouble making letter sound associations. But because just like an early intervention, you have to have a 25% delay in two or 33% delay in one area with, um, with learning disabilities, they're looking for a two grade discrepancy in your skills. So that means you have to be in second grade with the skills of a kindergartner in order to be diagnosed with a learning disability, which is really, I mean, it's crazy because if you are at a kindergarten level and you're being taught second grade material, how are you going to absorb anything, right? There's no way you can close that gap, let alone learn at the level you're supposed to be learning Right, plus you have to fall behind before you can get help, which doesn't make sense. Exactly, exactly. And like I was saying before, is that the testing, my experience is superficial. And so... I, I find that it's very hard to accurately diagnose anything other than the most obvious severe learning disabilities from the school district's testing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And they often, you know, they have, it's, a, it's, it's very so much school district to school district. So mm-hmm. some school districts will really do the full academic battery and some will do just little tiny pieces. Um, and then, you know, report those scores. Okay, this is only a little bit below average, so no problem. Um, but once you, what they don't recognize is, okay, so you're in kindergarten and you haven't learned what you need to learn in kindergarten, and now we're moving you to first grade, and you're only a little bit behind. But once you're a little bit behind, that gap is only going to widen if you're not being taught appropriately. Um, so, yes, you have to be so significantly behind before they're willing to get to do interventions 
Um, it's really problematic. Right. So one thing that parents can do is they can either, again, with their own money, pay for a private neuropsychological evaluation, which is much more thorough, or, mm-hmm. and this is something for parents should know about, you can always ask for an independent evaluation. And yes. you can do this on your own. You don't even necessarily have to have a lawyer on board to fight for you for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really has to be based on what your child needs. If your child is just a little bit behind and you go in there and you want that right independent evaluation, you he does not get it. Right. <laughs> right. Which again is frustrating, especially if you recognize these weak you know, that your child has some weaknesses. Um and no one's gonna intervene until they are at the level, you know, at the point of crisis. Um that's one of the frustrating things about the about the public education system. Right, and, and the other catch twenty two of your if you do private testing, and you bring it back to your district, they do not have to follow the recommendations, which in a way makes sense because you can go to anybody and pay someone to say my child needs the Cadillac of education. You're right. not entitled to the Cadillac of education. You're entitled to an appropriate one, not mm-hmm. the highest level model. And so, if you get someone, to, you pay someone to say my child needs all these crazy things, they don't, they shouldn't have to honor it. On the flip side, even if you go to someone reasonable and they say your child needs reasonable things, they also don't have to right. <laughs> honor that. Which is frustrating and was yeah. really hard um, for me, especially during when the schools were closed during the pandemic, they weren't doing evaluations. Um, I, I should say I was practicing in New York City at the time. I don't know what was happening in Long Island, but also, in New York City, they were not doing evaluations in person. Yeah, right. So, and so they had a huge backlog, and I was still seeing patients. I was still doing evaluations and saying this child needs special education. They need this, and kids that were really obvious. I mean, ten-year-olds who didn't know their letters, oh, yeah. um, and were in general education classes. And the schools still were not using my evaluation. No, we have to do our own evaluations, but we're not doing them for who knows how many months. Um, and the parents were, the other issue with this is I would tell, often tell parents, don't call. They're going to send you to voicemail. They don't call you back. Go to the school building, right. walk in, drop the letter off in person. Right. And that wasn't allowed. They weren't allowing anyone in the, oh, no. you know, yeah, in the building. So technique. it was really drop, challenging. Right. Drop a letter off. I used to say, get a double, you know, to have two copies, have them stamp it with the time frame because it's, it is exactly a time sequence to this. That is so hard. The, mm-hmm. yeah, the pandemic also, even for the youngest children, early intervention, they were doing remote assessments, which is ridiculous. Yes. And remote mm-hmm. therapy, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole a whole separate issue of the backlog yeah. that we're going to have yep. to catch up with. But it still boils down for the parents. You know, it's still your, your child's best advocate. Mm-hmm. If you see your child needs something, do not let someone tell you otherwise. Fight, kick, and scream for it. Exactly. I always say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So you want right. to be the annoying one. You want to be the one there. You want to be the squeaky wheel. Right, right. But it's also important on the flip side to listen to people who are evaluating your child, because if you're so busy telling everybody what you think your child needs, you're not listening to them tell you what they think, right? So right. it's hard because you don't want to also be unnecessary adversarial. Mm-hmm. That's also problematic. Yeah. I will say the vast majority of patients that I see, I, for, especially for learning disabilities, they they know and they're not asking for anything that is outrageous or inappropriate or too much. Like they're really, I tend to be on the same page with the parents and it's the school that is, you know, 
fighting back. And again, it comes down to funding. The school doesn't, they're not doing this on purpose. They're not doing it to be bad people or whatnot. They have a limited budget and they have a lot of kids with needs. And, um, you know, so I do think they're trying, they're trying to do the best they can with what they have. Um, but it's there true. are limitations. It's true. And I want to go back a little bit and say, why is it important to get the correct diagnosis for your child? Because, I do see, you know, parents who are like, okay, you know, I don't really want my child to be labeled and they're getting services. What does it matter what we call it? So for some things, the services do depend on the diagnosis. So like we talked about earlier with autism, Mm -hmm. in New York State, you can only get ABA um, through early intervention and you can only get ABA through your insurance later on if your insurance covers it, if you have that autism diagnosis. And the same is going to go for things like a learning disability, like dyslexia. If you have a diagnosis of dyslexia, then there's access to certain reading programs that are, that there's, there's research done that shows that this reading program is, works to teach kids with dyslexia how to read. And getting that diagnosis is going to force the school system to give the child that reading program. Whereas if it's a different diagnosis, they're not going to give them that reading program. They're not going to give them, you know, math interventions or writing interventions um, or accommodations that are really going to help with that specific uh, disorder. Right. That's a really important point because I have found that school districts sometimes will just put a label on a child that entitles them to the least amount of services. And if the parent's not in the know, you know, and they're saying, oh, don't worry, you're getting everything your child needs. But they're not because they do have a learning disability. I don't see mm-hmm. too many kids getting classified as learning disabled. No, they speech. They like to do the speech and language and give them speech and language therapy, but not the learning disability um, interventions, right. I find, as for kids with reading. Um, and a lot of kids with reading disorders do have language disorders also, and they need the speech and language piece as well. Uh, but the speech and language piece alone is not enough. Right. So that's really, really important to know. So I have to say, you gave us so much information, and I think this is really, really helpful. And I'm glad you moved to my neighborhood so I can <laughs> refer patients to you. Thank you. <laughs> because we, our, you know, our kids need an advocate, and I can tell that you're an advocate for kids, and that's really, really so important. Thank you. And I'm, it's also really nice to meet you. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> too. So thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Thanks for listening to the Jomo Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.